What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill. Read by Adrian Pretzelis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill. Chapter 5. Yes, but what will become of the beautiful? said Denzil Cantercot. Hang the beautiful! said Peter Crowell, as if he were on the committee of the Academy. "'Give me the true!' Denzil did nothing of the sort. He didn't happen to have it about him. Denzil Cantercot stood smoking a cigarette in his landlord's shop, and imparting an air of distinction and an agreeable aroma to the close, leathery atmosphere. Crowell cobbled away, talking to his tenant without raising his eyes. He was a small, big-headed, sallow, sad-eyed man, with a greasy apron. Denzil was wearing a heavy overcoat with a fur collar. He was never seen without it in public during the winter. In private he removed it and sat in his shirt-sleeves. Crowell was a thinker, or thought he was, which seems to involve original thinking anyway. His hair was thinning rapidly at the top, as if his brain was struggling to get as near as possible to the realities of things. He prided himself on having no fads. Few men are without some foible or hobby. Crowell felt almost lonely at times in his superiority. He was a vegetarian, a secularist, a blue ribbonite, a republican, and an anti-tobacconist. Meat was a fad. Drink was a fad. Religion was a fad. Monarchy was a fad. Tobacco was a fad. A plain man like me, Crowell used to say, can live without fads. A plain man was Crowell's catchword. When of a Sunday morning he stood on Mile End Waste, which was opposite his shop, and held forth to the crowds on the evils of kings, priests, and mutton-chops, the plain man turned up at intervals like the theme of a symphonic movement. "'I'm only a plain man, and I want to know,' was a phrase that sabred the spider-webs of logical refinement, and held them up scornfully on the point. When Crowell went for a little recreation in Victoria Park on Sunday afternoons, it was with this phrase that he invariably routed the supernaturalists. 
Crowell knew his Bible better than most ministers, and always carried a miniature printed copy in his pocket, dog-eared to mark contradictions in the text. The second chapter of Jeremiah says one thing. The first chapter of Corinthians says another. Two contradictory statements may both be true, but I'm only a plain man, and I want to know. Crowell spent a large part of his time in setting the word against the word. Cockfighting affords its votaries no acuter pleasure than Crowell derived from setting two texts by the ears. Crowell had a metaphysical genius which sent his Sunday morning disciples frantic with admiration, and struck the enemy dumb with dismay. He had discovered, for instance, that the deity could not move, owing to already filling up all space. He was also the first to invent, for the confusion of the clerical, the crucial case of a saint dying at the Antipodes contemporaneously with another in London. Both went skyward to heaven, yet the two travelled in directly opposite directions. In all eternity they would never meet. Which, then, got to heaven? Or was there no such place? I'm only a plain man, and I want to know. Preserve us our open spaces. They exist to testify to the incurable interest of humanity in the unknown and the misunderstood. Even Arry is capable of five minutes' attention to speculative theology if Ariot isn't in a hurry. Peter Crowell was not sorry to have a lodger like Denzil Cantercot, who, though a man of parts and thus worth powder and shot, was so hopelessly wrong on all subjects under the sun. In only one point did Peter Crowell agree with Denzil Cantercot. He admired Denzil Cantercot secretly. When he asked him for the true, which was about twice a day on the average, he didn't really expect to get it from him. He knew that Denzil was a poet. "'The beautiful,' he went on, "'is a thing that only appeals to men like you.' The true is for all men. The majority have the first claim, till you poets must stand aside. The true and the useful, that's what we want. The good of society is the only test of things. Everything stands or falls by the good of society. The good of society, echoed Denzel scornfully. What's the good of society? The individual is before all. The mass must be sacrificed to the great man. Otherwise, the great man will be sacrificed to the mass. Without great men, there would be no art. Without art, life would be a blank. Ah, but we should fill it up with bread and butter, said Peter Crowell. Yes, it is bread and butter that kills the beautiful said Denzil Cantercot bitterly. Many of us start by following the butterfly through the verdant meadows, but we turn aside to get the grub, <laughs> chuckled Peter, cobbling away. Peter, if you make a jest of everything, I'll not waste my time on you. Denzil's wild eyes flashed angrily. He shook his long hair. Life was very serious to him. He never wrote comic verse, intentionally. 
there are three reasons why men of genius have long hair. One is that they forget it is growing. The second is that they like it. The third is that it comes cheaper. They wear it long for the same reason they wear their hats long. Owing to this peculiarity of genius, you may get quite a reputation for lack of tuppence. The economic reason did not apply to Denzil, who could always get credit with the profession on the strength of his appearance. Therefore, when street Arabs vocally commanded him to get his hair cut, they were doing no service to barbers. Why does all the world watch over barbers, and to conspire to promote their interests? Denzil would have told you it was not to serve the barbers, but to gratify the crowd's instinctive resentment of originality. In his palmy days Denzil had been an editor, but he no more thought of turning his scissors against himself than of swallowing his paste. The efficacy of hair was changed since the days of Samson, otherwise Denzil would have been a Hercules instead of a long, thin, nervous man, looking too brittle and delicate to be used even for a pipe-cleaner. The narrow oval of his face sloped to a pointed, untrimmed beard. His linen was reproachable, his dingy boots were down at heel, and his cocked hat was drab with dust. Such are the effects of a love for the beautiful. Peter Crowell was impressed with Denzil's condemnation of flippancy, and he hastened to turn off the joke. "'I'm quite serious,' he said. "'Butterflies are no good to nothing or nobody. Caterpillars at least save the birds from starving.' "'Just like your view of things, Peter,' said Denzil. "'Good morning, madam.' This to Mrs. Crowell, to whom he removed his hat with elaborate courtesy. Mrs. Crowell grunted, and looked at her husband with a note of interrogation in each eye. For some seconds Crowell stuck to his last, endeavouring not to see the question. He shifted uneasily on his stool. His wife coughed grimly. He looked up saw her towering over him, and helplessly shook his head in a horizontal direction. It was wonderful how Mrs. Crowell towered over Mr. Crowell, even when he stood up in his shoes. She measured half an inch less. It was quite an optical illusion. "'Mr. Crowell,' said Mrs. Crowell, "'then I'll tell him.' "'No, no, my dear, not yet,' faltered Peter helplessly. "'Leave it to me.' I've left it to you long enough. You'll never do nothing. If it was a question of providing to a lot of chuckleheads that Jolly G and Genesis or some other dead-and-gone scripture folk that don't concern no mortal soul used to contradict each other, your tongue'd run thirteen to the dozen. But when it's a matter of taking the bread out of the mouths of your own children, you ain't got no more to say for yourself than a lamp-post. Here's a man staying with you for weeks and weeks, eating and drinking the flesh off your bones, without paying a fa— Hush, hush, mother, it's all right, said poor Crowl, red as fire. Denzil looked at her dreamily. Is it possible you're alluding to me, Mrs. Crowl? he said. Who then should I be alluding to, Mr. Cantercot? 
Here's seven weeks come and gone, and not a blessed apney have I. My dear Mrs. Crowl, said Denzil, removing his cigarette from his mouth with a pained air, why reproach me with your neglect? My neglect? I like that. I don't, said Denzil more sharply. If you had sent me in the bill, you would have had the money long ago. How do you expect me to think of these details? We ain't so grand down here. People pays their way. They don't get no bills, said Mrs. Crowl, accentuating the word with infinite scorn. Peter hammered away at a nail, as though to drown his spouse's voice. "'It's three pounds, fourteen and eightpence, if you're so anxious to know,' Mrs. Crowl resumed. "'And there ain't a woman in the Mile End Road had done it cheaper, with bread at fourpence three farthing a quartern, and landlords clambering for rent every Monday morning, almost afore the sun's up, and folks dragging and slithering on till their shoes is only fit to throw after brides, and Christmas coming, and sevenpence a week for schooling.' Peter winced under the last item. He had felt it coming, like Christmas. His wife and he parted company on the question of free education. Peter felt that, having brought nine children into the world, it was only fair that he should pay a penny a week for each of those old enough to bear educating. His better half argued that, having so many children, they ought in reason to be exempted. Only people who had few children could spare the penny. But the one point on which the cobbler specific of the Mile End Road got his way was this of the fees. It was a question of conscience, and Mrs. Crowl had never made application for their remission, though she often slapped her children in vexation instead. They were used to slapping, and when nobody else slapped them, they slapped one another. They were bright, ill-mannered brats who pestered their parents and worried their teachers, and were as happy as the road was long. "'Oh, bother the school fees!' Peter retorted, vexed. "'Mr. Cantercott's not responsible for your children.' "'I should hope not indeed, Mr. Crowl,' Mrs. Crowl said sternly. "'I'm ashamed of you.' And with that she flounced out of the shop into the back parlour. "'It's all right,' Peter called after her soothingly. "'The money'll be all right, mother.' In lower circles it is customary to call your wife your mother. In somewhat superior circles it is the fashion to speak of her as the wife, as you speak of the stock exchange or the Thames, without claiming any particular property. Instinctively men are ashamed of being moral and domesticated.' Denzil puffed his cigarette unembarrassed. Peter bent attentively over his work, making nervous stabs with his awl. There was a long silence. An organ-grinder played a waltz outside unregarded, and, failing to annoy anybody, moved on. Denzil lit another cigarette. The dirty-faced clock on the wall chimed twelve. "'What do you think?' said Crowl, of republics. "'They are low,' Denzil replied. "'Without a monarch there is no visible incarnation of authority.' "'What? Do you call Queen Victoria visible?' 
Peter, do you want to drive me from the house? Leave frivolousness to women whose minds are only large enough for domestic difficulties. Republics are low. Plato mercifully kept the poets out of his. Republics are not congenial soil for poetry. What nonsense! If England dropped its fad of monarchy and became a republic to-morrow, do you mean to say that— I mean to say there would be no poet laureate to begin with. Who's fibbing now, you or me, Cantercot? But I don't care a button-hook about poets, present company always excepted. I'm only a plain man, and I want to know, where's the sense of giving any one person authority over everybody else? Ah, that's what Tom Mortlake used to say. Wait till you're in power, Peter, with trade-union money to control, and working men bustling to give you flying angels, and to carry you aloft like a banner huzzaring. "'Ah, oh, that's because he's head and shoulders above em already,' said Crowl, with a flash in his sad grey eyes. "'Still, it don't prove that I talk any different, and I don't think you're quite wrong about his being spoilt. Tom's a fine fellow, a man every inch of him, and that's a good many. I don't deny he has his weaknesses, and there was a time when he stood in this very shop and denounced that poor dead Constant.' Crowl, he said, that man'll do mischief. I don't like these kid-glove philanthropists mixing themselves up in practical labour disputes they don't understand. Denzil whistled involuntarily. It was a piece of news. I dare say, continued Crowl, he's a bit jealous of anybody's interference with his influence. But in this case the jealousy did wear off, you see, for the poor feller and he got quite pals, as everybody knows. Tom's not the man to hug a prejudice. However, all that don't prove nothing against republics. Look at the Tsar and the Jews. Now I'm only a plain man, and I wouldn't live in Russia, not for, not for all the leather in it. An Englishman, taxed as he is to keep up his fad of monarchy, is at least a king in his own castle, whoever bosses it at Windsor. Excuse me a minute, the missus is calling. Excuse me a minute, I'm going, and I want to say before I go, I feel it only right you should know at once that after what has passed to-day, I can never be on the same footing here as in the, shall we say, pleasant days of yore. "'Oh, no, Cantercot, don't say that, don't say that,' pleaded the little cobbler. "'Well, shall I say unpleasant, then?' "'No, no, Cantercot, don't misunderstand me. Mother has been very much put to it lately to rub along. You see, she has such a growing family, it grows daily. But never mind her, you pay whenever you got the money.' Denzil shook his head. It cannot be. You know, when I came here first, I rented your top room and boarded myself. Then I learned to know you. We talked together of the beautiful and the useful. I found you had no soul, but you were honest, and I liked you. I went so far as to take my meals with your family. I made myself at home in your back parlour. But the vase has been shattered.' 
I do not refer to that on the mantelpiece, and though the scent of the roses may cling to it still, it can be pieced together nevermore. He shook his hair sadly and shambled out of the shop. Crowl would have gone after him, but Mrs. Crowl was still calling, and ladies must have the precedence in all polite societies. Cantercot went straight, or as straight as his loose gait permitted, to 46 Glover Street, and knocked at the door. Grodman's factotum opened it. She was a pockmarked person, with a brick-dust complexion and a coquettish manner. "'Oh, here we are again,' she said vivaciously. "'Don't talk like a clown,' Cantercot snapped. "'Is Mr. Grodman in?' "'No, you've put him out,' growled the gentleman himself, suddenly appearing in his slippers. "'Come in. What the devil have you been doing with yourself since the inquest? Drinking again?' "'I've sworn off. Haven't touched a drop since—the murder.' "'Eh?' said Denzil Cantercot, startled. "'What do you mean?' "'What I say. Since December 4, I reckon everything from that murder now, as they reckon longitude from Greenwich.' "'Oh!' said Denzil Cantercot. "'Let me see. Nearly a fortnight. What a long time to keep away from drink. And me.' "'I don't know which is worse,' said Denzil, irritated. "'You both steal away my brains.' "'Indeed,' said Grodman, with an amused smile. "'Well, it's only petty pilfering after all. What's put salt on your wounds?' "'The twenty-fourth edition of my book.' "'Whose book?' "'Well, your book. You must be making piles of money out of criminals I have caught.' "'Criminals? I have caught," corrected Grodman. "'My dear Denzil, how often am I to point out that I went through the experiences that made the backbone of my book, not you? In each case, I cooked the criminal's goose. Any journalist could have supplied the dressing. The contrary. The journeymen of journalism would all have left the truth naked.' You yourself could have done that, for there is no man to beat you at cold, lucid, scientific statements. But I idealized the bare facts, and lifted them into the realm of poetry and literature. The twenty-fourth edition of the book attests my success. Rot! The twenty-fourth edition was all owing to the murder. Did you know that? "'You take one up so sharply, Mr. Grodman,' said Denzil, changing his tone. "'Nah, I've retired,' laughed Grodman. Denzil did not reprove the ex-detective's flippancy. He even laughed a little. "'Well, give me another fiver, and I'll cry quits. I'm in debt.' "'Not a penny. Why haven't you been to see me since the murder? I had to write that letter to the pell-mell press myself. You might have earned a crown. I've had a uh, writer's cramp, and couldn't do your last job. I was coming to tell you on the morning of the murder. So you said at the inquest. It's true. Of course. Weren't you on your oath? It was very zealous of you to get up so early to tell me. 
"'In which hand did you have this cramp?' "'Why, in the uh, right, of course.' "'And you couldn't write with your left?' "'I don't think I could even held a pen.' "'Or any other instrument, mayhap.' "'What had you been doing to bring it on?' "'Writing too much. That's the only possible cause.' "'Oh, I didn't know. Writing what?' Denzil hesitated. "'An epic poem.' "'No wonder you're in debt. Will a sovereign get you out of it?' "'No, it wouldn't be the least use to me.' "'Here it is, then.' Denzil took the coin and his hat. "'Aren't you going to earn it, you beggar? Sit down and write something for me.' Denzil got pen and paper and took his place. "'What do you want me to write?' "'Your epic poem.' Denzil started and flushed, but he set to work. Grodman leaned back in his armchair and laughed, studying the poet's grave face. Denzil wrote three lines and paused. "'Can't remember any more? Well, read me the start.' Denzil read. "'Of man's first disobedience, and the fruit of that forbidden tree, whose morbid taste brought death into the world—' "'Hold on!' cried Grodman. "'What morbid subjects you choose to be sure!' "'Morbid? Why, Milton chose the same subject.' "'Blow, Milton! Take yourself off, you and your epics!' Denzel went. The pockmarked person opened the street door for him. "'When am I going to have that new dress, dear?' she whispered coquettishly. "'I have no money, Jane,' he said shortly. "'You have a sovereign.' Denzil gave her the sovereign, and slammed the door viciously. Grodman overheard their whispers, and laughed silently. His hearing was acute. Jane had first introduced Denzil to his acquaintance about two years ago, when he spoke of getting an amanuensis, and the poet had been doing odd jobs for him ever since. Grodman argued that Jane had her reasons— Without knowing them, he got a hold over both. There was no one he felt he could not get a hold over. All men and women have something to conceal, and you only have to pretend to know what it is. Thus Grodman, who was nothing if not scientific. Denzel Cantercot shambled home thoughtfully, and abstractly took his place at the Crowell dinner-table. End of chapter 5「The Big Bow Mystery » by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE BIG BOW MYSTERY by Israel Zangwill CHAPTER Six. Mrs. Crowl surveyed Denzel Cantercot so stonily, and cut him his beef so savagely, that he said grace when the dinner was over. Peter fed his metaphysical genius on tomatoes. He was tolerant enough to allow his family to follow their fads, 
but no savoury smells ever tempted him to be false to his vegetable loves. Besides, meat might have reminded him too much of his work. There is nothing like leather, but bow beefsteaks occasionally come very near it. After dinner Denzil usually indulged in poetic reverie, but to-day he did not take his nap. He went out at once to raise the wind. But there was a dead calm everywhere. In vain he asked for an advance at the office of the Mile End Mirror, to which he contributed scathing leaderettes about vestrymen. In vain he trudged to the city, and offered to write the Ham and Eggs Gazette an essay on the modern methods of bacon-curing. Denzil knew a great deal about the breeding and slaughtering of pigs, smoke-lofts, and drying processes, having for years dictated the policy of the New Pork Herald in these momentous matters. Denzil also knew a great deal about many other esoteric matters, including weaving machines, the manufacture of cabbage leaves and snuff, and the inner economy of drain-pipes. He had written for the trade papers since boyhood, but there is a great competition on these papers, so many men of literary gifts know all about the intricate technicalities of manufactures and markets, and are eager to set the trade right. Grodman perhaps hardly allowed sufficiently for the step backward that Denzil made when he devoted his whole time for months to criminals I have caught. It was as damaging as a debauch, for when your rivals are pushing forwards, to stand still is to go back. In despair Denzil shambled toilsomely to Bethnal Green. He paused before the window of a little tobacconist's shop, wherein was displayed a placard announcing— plots for sale. The announcement went on to state that a large stock of plots was to be obtained on the premises, embracing sensational plots, humorous plots, love plots, religious plots, and poetic plots, also complete manuscripts, original novels, poems, and tales. Apply within. It was a very dirty-looking shop, with begrimed bricks and blackened woodwork. The window contained some musty old books, an assortment of pipes and tobacco, and a large number of the vilest daubs unhung, painted in oil on academy boards, and unframed. These were intended for landscapes, as you could tell from the titles. The most expensive was Chingford Church, and it was marked one and ninepence. The others ran from sixpence to one and threepence, and were mostly representations of Scottish scenery— a lock with mountains in the background, with solid reflections in the water, and a tree in the foreground. Sometimes the tree would be in the background. Then the lock would be in the foreground. Sky and water were intensely blue in all. The name of the collection was Original Oil Paintings Done by Hand. Dust lay thick upon everything, as if carefully shoveled on and the proprietor looked as if he'd slept in his shop-window at night without taking his clothes off. He was a gaunt man with a red nose, long but scanty black locks covered by a smoking-cap, and a luxurious black moustache. He smoked a long clay pipe, and had the air of a broken-down operatic villain. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Cantercott,' he said, rubbing his hands, half from cold, half from usage. "'What have you brought me?' 
"'Nothing,' said Denzil. "'But if you will lend me a sovereign, I'll do you a stunner.' The operatic villain shook his locks, his eyes full of porky cunning. "'If you did it after that, it would be a stunner.' What the operatic villain did with these plots, and who bought them, Canticott neither knew nor cared to know. Brains are cheap to-day, and Denzil was glad enough to find a customer. "'Surely you've known me long enough to trust me?' he cried. "'Trust is dead,' said the operatic villain, puffing away. "'So is Queen Anne,' cried the irritated poet. His eyes took a dangerous, hunted look. Money he must have. But the operatic villain was inflexible. No plot, no supper. Poor Denzil went out flaming. He knew not where to turn. Temporarily he turned on his heel again, and stared despairingly at the shop-window. Again he read the legend, Plots for Sale. He stared so long at this that it lost its meaning. When the sense of the word suddenly flashed upon him again, they bore a new significance. He went in meekly, and borrowed fourpence of the operatic villain. Then he took the bus for Scotland Yard. There was a not ill-looking servant-girl in the bus. The rhythm of the vehicle shaped itself into rhymes in his brain. He forgot all about his situation and his object. He had never really written an epic, except Paradise Lost, but he composed lyrics about wine and women, and often wept to think how miserable he was. But nobody ever bought anything of him, except articles on bacon-curing or attacks on vestrymen. He was a strange, wild creature, and the wench felt quite pretty under his ardent gaze. It almost hypnotized her, though she looked down at her new French kid boots to escape it. At Scotland Yard Denzil asked for Edward Wimp. Edward Wimp was not on view. Like kings and editors, detectives are difficult to approach, unless you are a criminal, when you cannot see anything of them at all. Denzel knew of Edward Wimp principally because of Grodman's contempt for his successor. Wimp was a man of taste and culture. Grodman's interests were entirely concentrated on the problems of logic and evidence. Books about these formed his sole reading. For belles-lettres he cared not a straw. Wimp, with his flexible intellect, had a great contempt for Grodman and his slow, laborious, ponderous, almost Teutonic methods. Worse, he almost threatened to eclipse the radiant tradition of Grodman by some wonderfully ingenious bits of workmanship. Wimp was at his greatest in collecting circumstantial evidence, in putting two and two together to make five. He would collect together a number of dark and disconnected data, and flash across them the electric light of some unifying hypothesis, in a way which would have done credit to a Darwin or a Faraday. An intellect which might have served to unveil the secret workings of nature was subverted to the protection of a capitalistic civilization. By the assistance of a friendly policeman, whom the poet magnetized into the belief that his business was a matter of life and death, Denzil obtained the great detective's private address. It was near King's Cross. By a miracle Wimp was at home in the afternoon. He was writing when Denzil was ushered up three pairs of stairs into his presence, but he got up and flashed the bull's-eye of his glance upon the visitor. 
"'Mr. Denzil Cantercourt, I believe,' said Wimp. Denzil started. He had not sent up his name, merely describing himself as a gentleman. "'That is my name,' he murmured. "'You were one of the witnesses at the inquest on the body of the late Arthur Constant. Uh, I have your evidence here,' he pointed to a file. "'Why have you come to give fresh evidence?' Again Denzil started, flushing in addition this time. "'I want money,' he said, almost involuntarily. "'Sit down.' Denzil sat. Wimp stood. Wimp was young and fresh-coloured. He had a Roman nose, and was smartly dressed. He had beaten Grodman by discovering the wife heaven meant for him. He had a bouncing boy, who stole jam out of the pantry without any one being the wiser. Wimp did what work he could do at home in a secluded study at the top of the house. Outside his chamber of horrors he was the ordinary husband of commerce. He adored his wife, who thought poorly of his intellect, but highly of his heart. In domestic difficulties Wimp was helpless. He could not even tell whether the servant's character was forged or genuine. Probably he could not level himself to such petty problems. He was like the senior wrangler, who has forgotten how to do quadratics, and has to solve equations of the second degree by the calculus. "'How much money do you want?' he asked. "'I do not make bargains,' Denzil replied, his calm come back by this time. "'I came here to tender you a suggestion. It struck me that you might offer me a fiver for my trouble. Should you do so, I should not refuse it.' "'You shall not refuse it, if you deserve it.' "'Good. I come to the point at once.' My suggestion concerns Tom Mortlake. Denzil threw out the name as if it were a torpedo. Wimp did not move. Tom Mortlake, went on Denzil, looking disappointed, uh, had a sweetheart. He paused impressively. Wimp said, Yes. Where is that sweetheart now? Where indeed? You know about her disappearance? "'You have just informed me of it.' "'Yes, she is gone, without a trace. "'She went about a fortnight before Mr. Constance's murder.' "'Murder? How do you know it was murder?' "'Grodman says so,' said Denzil, startled again. "'Hm. Isn't that rather proof that it was suicide? <laughs> "'Well, go on.' About a fortnight before the suicide, Jessie Diamond disappeared, so they tell me in Stepney Green, where she lodged and worked. What was she? She was a dressmaker. She had a wonderful talent. Quite fashionable ladies got to know of it. One of her dresses was presented at court. I think the lady forgot to pay for it, so Jessie's landlady said. Did she live alone? She had no parents, but the house was respectable. "'Good-looking, I suppose?' "'As a poet's dream.' "'As yours, for instance?' "'I am a poet. I dream.' "'You dream you are a poet. Well, well. She was engaged to Mortlake.' "'Oh, yes, they made no secret of it. The engagement was an old one. 
when he was earning thirty-six shillings a week as a compositor, they were saving up to buy a home. He worked at Railton and Hawks, who print the New Pork Herald. I used to take my copy into the comps room, and one day the father of the chapel told me all about Mortlake and his young woman. Ye gods! How times are changed! Two years ago Mortlake had to struggle with my calligraphy. Now he is in with all the knobs, and goes to the at-homes of the aristocracy. "'Radical MPs,' murmured Wimp, smiling. "'While I am still barred from the dazzling drawing-rooms where beauty and intellect foregather, a mere artisan, a manual labourer,' Denzil's eyes flashed angrily. He rose with excitement. They say he always was a jabberer in the compositing-room, and he jabbered himself right out of it, and into a pretty good thing. He didn't have much to say about the crimes of capital when he was set up to second the toast of Railton and Hawks at the bean-feast. "'Toast in butter, toast in butter,' said Wimp genially. "'I shouldn't blame a man for serving the two together, Mr. Cantercote.' Denzil forced a laugh. "'Yes, but consistence is my motto. I like to see the royal soul immaculate, unchanging, immovable by fortune. Anyhow, when better times came for Mortlake, the engagement still dragged on. He did not visit her so much. This last autumn he saw very little of her.' "'How do you know?' "'I—I I was often in Stepney Green.' My business took me past the house of an evening. Sometimes there was no light in her room. That meant she was downstairs gossiping with the landlady. She might have been out with Tom? No, sir. I knew Tom was on the platform somewhere or other. He was working up at all hours, organising the eight-hours working movement. A very good reason for relaxing his sweethearting. It was— he never went to Stepney Green on a weeknight. But you always did. No, not every night. You didn't go in? Never. She wouldn't permit my visits. She was a girl of strong character. She always reminded me of Flora MacDonald. Another lady of your acquaintance? A lady I know better than the shadows who surround me who is more real to me than the women who pester me for the price of apartments. Jessie Diamond, too, was of the race of heroines. Her eyes were clear blue, two wells with truth at the bottom of each. When I looked into those eyes, my own were dazzled. They were the only eyes I could never make dreamy. He waved his hand as if making a pass with it. It was she who had the influence over me. "'You knew her, then?' "'Oh, yes. I knew Tom from the old New Pork Herald days, and when I first met him with Jessie hanging on his arm, he was quite proud to introduce her to a poet. When he got on, he tried to shake me off.' "'You should have repaid him what you borrowed.' "'It was only a trifle,' stammered Denzil. "'Yes, but the world turns on trifles,' said the wise wimp. "'The world is itself a trifle,' said the pensive poet. "'The beautiful alone is deserving of our regard.' "'And when the beautiful was not gossiping with her landlady,' 
"'Did she gossip with you as you passed the door?' "'Alas, no. She sat in her room reading and cast a shadow.' "'On your life?' "'No, on the blind.' "'Always one shadow?' "'No, sir. Uh, once or twice, two. "'Ah, you had been drinking.' "'On my life, not. I have sworn off the treacherous wine-cup.' "'That's right. Beer is bad for poets. It makes their feet shaky. "'Whose was the second shadow?' "'A man's.' "'Naturally. Mortlake's, perhaps.' "'Impossible. He was still striking eight hours.' "'You found out whose shadow? You didn't leave a shadow of doubt?' "'No.' I waited till the substance came out. It was Arthur Constant. You are a magician. You you terrify me. Yes, it was he. Only once or twice, you say? I didn't keep watch over them. No, no, of course not. You only passed casually. I understand you thoroughly. Denzil did not feel comfortable at the assertion. What did he go there for? Wimp went on. I don't know. I'd stake my soul on Jessie's honour. You might double your stake without risk. Yes, I might. I would. You see her with my eyes. For the moment they are the only ones available. When was the last time you saw the two together? About the middle of November. Mortlake knew nothing of the meetings? I don't know. Perhaps he did. Mr. Constant had probably enlisted her in his social mission work. I knew she was one of the attendants at the big children's tea in the great assembly hall early in November. He treated her quite like a lady. She was the only attendant who worked with her hands. The others carried the caps on their feet, I suppose. No. How could that be? My meaning is that all the other attendants were real ladies, and— Jessie was only an amateur, so to speak. There was no novelty for her in handling kids' cups of tea. I dare say she had helped her landlady often enough at that. There's quite a bushel of brats below stairs. It's almost as bad as at friend Crowell's. Jessie was a real brick. But perhaps Tom didn't know her value. Perhaps he didn't like Constant to call on her, and it led to a quarrel. Anyhow, she's disappeared, like the snowfall on the river. There's not a trace. The landlady, who was such a friend of hers that Jessie used to make her up her stuff into dresses for nothing, tells me that she's dreadfully annoyed at not having been left the slightest clue to her late tenant's whereabouts. You have been making inquiries on your own account, apparently. Only of the landlady. Jessie never even gave her the week's notice, but paid her in lieu of it, and left her immediately. The landlady told me I could have knocked her down with a feather. Unfortunately, I wasn't there to do it, or I should certainly have knocked her down for not keeping her eyes open better. She says if she had only the least suspicion beforehand that the minx—she dared to call Jessie a minx—was going— She'd have known where, or her name would have been somebody else's. And yet she admits that Jessie was looking ill and worried. Stupid old hag! A woman of character, murmured the detective. Didn't I tell you so? cried Denzil eagerly. 
Another girl would have let out that she was going. But no, not a word. She plumped down the money and walked out. The landlady ran upstairs. None of Jessie's things were there. She must have quietly sailed them off or transferred them to the new place. I never in my life met a girl who so thoroughly knew her own mind or had a mind so worth knowing. She always reminded me of the maid of Saragossa. Indeed. And when did she leave? On the 19th of November. Mortlake, of course, knows where she is. I can't say. Last time I was at the house to inquire, it was at the end of November. He hadn't been seen there for six weeks. He wrote to her, of course, sometimes. The landlady knew his writing. Wimp looked Denzil straight in the eyes and said, You mean, of course, to accuse Mortlake of the murder of Mr. Constant? No, 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 not at all, stammered Denzil. Only, you know what Mr. Grodman wrote in the Pell-Mell? The more we know about Mr. Constant's life, the more we shall know about the manner of his death. I thought my information would be valuable to you, so I brought it in. And why didn't you take it to Mr. Grodman? Because I thought it wouldn't be valuable to me. You wrote criminals I have caught? How, how did you know that? Wimp was startling him to-day with a vengeance. "'Your style, my dear Mr. Cantercott, the unique, noble style.' "'Yes, I was afraid it would betray me,' said Denzil. "'And since you know, I may tell you that Grodman's a mean curmudgeon. What does he want with all that money in those houses? A man with no sense of the beautiful. He'd have taken my information, and given me more kicks than halfpence for it, so to speak.' "'Yes.' He's a shrewd man, after all. I don't see anything valuable in your evidence against Mortlake. No, said Denzil, in a disappointed tone, and fearing he was going to be robbed. Not when Mortlake was already jealous of Mr. Constant, who was a sort of rival organiser, unpaid. A kind of blackleg doing the work cheaper, nay, for nothing. Did Mortlake tell you he was jealous? said Wimp, a shade of sarcastic contempt piercing through his tones. "'Oh, yes,' he said to me, "'that man will work mischief. I don't like your kid-glove philanthropists meddling in matters they don't understand.' "'Those were his very words.' "'His ipsissima verba.' "'Very well. I have taken your address in my files. Here is a sovereign for you.' Only a sovereign? It's not the least use to me. Very well. It's of great use to me. I have a wife to keep. I haven't, said Denzil, with a sickly smile. So perhaps I can manage on it after all. He took his hat and the sovereign. Outside the door he met a rather pretty servant, just bringing in some tea to her master. He nearly upset her tray at the sight of her. She seemed more amused at the rencontre than he. "'Good afternoon, dear,' she said coquettishly. "'You might let me have that sovereign. I do so want a Sunday bonnet.' Denzil gave her the sovereign, and slammed the hall door viciously when he got to the bottom of the stairs. He seemed to be walking arm in arm with the long arm of coincidence. Wimp did not hear the duologue. He was already busy on his evening's report to headquarters. 
The next day Denzil had a bodyguard wherever he went. It might have gratified his vanity had he known it, but to-night he was yet unattended, so no one noted that he went to 46 Glover Street after the early Crowl supper. He could not help going. He wanted to get another sovereign. He also itched to taunt Grodman. Not succeeding in the former object, he felt the road open for the second. "'Do you still hope to discover the bow murderer?' he asked the old bloodhound. "'I can lay my hand on him now,' Grodman announced curtly. Denzil hitched his hair back involuntarily. He found conversations with detectives as lively as playing at skittles with bombshells. They got on his nerves terribly, these undemonstrative gentlemen with no sense of the beautiful. "'But why don't you give him up to justice?' he murmured. "'Ah! Oh, it has to be proved yet. But it is only a matter of time.' "'Oh!' said Denzil. "'And shall I write the story for you?' "'No. You will not live long enough.' Denzil turned white. "'Nonsense! I'm years younger than you,' he gasped. "'Yes,' said Grodman. "'But you drink so much.' End of chapter 6 The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org The Big Bow Mystery by Israel Zangwill. Chapter 7 When Wimp invited Grodman to eat his Christmas plum-pudding at King's Cross, Grodman was only a little surprised. The two men were always overwhelmingly cordial when they met, in order to disguise their mutual detestation. When people really like each other, they make no concealment of their mutual contempt. In his letter to Grodman, Wimp said that he thought it might be nicer for him to keep Christmas in company than in solitary state. There seems to be a general prejudice in favour of Christmas numbers, and Grodman yielded to it. Besides, he thought that a peep at the Wimp domestic interior would be as good as a pantomime. He quite enjoyed the fun that was coming, for he knew that Wimp had not invited him out of mere peace and good will. There was only one other guest at the festive board. This was Wimp's wife's mother's mother, a lady of sweet seventy. Only a minority of mankind can obtain a grandmother-in-law by marrying, but Wimp was not unduly conceited. The old lady suffered from delusions. One of them was that she was a centenarian. She dressed for the part. It is extraordinary what pains ladies will take to conceal their age. Another of Wimp's grandmother-in-law's delusions was that Wimp had married to get her into the family. Not to frustrate his design, she always gave him her company on high days and holidays. Wilfred Wimp, the little boy who stole the jam, was in great form at the Christmas dinner. The only drawback to his enjoyment was that its sweets needed no stealing. His mother presided over the platters, and thought how much cleverer Grodman was than her husband. When the pretty servant who waited on them was momentarily out of the room, 
Grodman had remarked that she seemed very inquisitive. This coincided with Mrs. Wimp's own convictions, though Mr. Wimp could never be brought to see anything unsatisfactory or suspicious about the girl, not even though there were faults in spelling in the character with which her last mistress had supplied her. It was true that the puss had pricked up her ears when Denzil Cantercott's name was mentioned. Grodman saw it, and watched her, and fooled Wimp to the top of his bent. It was, of course, Wimp who introduced the poet's name, and he did it so casually that Grodman perceived at once that he wished to pump him. The idea that the rival bloodhound should come to him for confirmation of suspicions against his own pet jackal was too funny. It was almost as funny to Grodman that evidence of some sort should be obviously lying to hand in the bosom of Wimp's handmaiden, so obviously that Wimp could not see it. Grodman enjoyed his Christmas dinner, secure that he had not found a successor after all. Wimp, for his part, contemptuously wondered at the way Grodman's thought hovered about Denzil without grazing the truth. A man constantly about him, too. "'Denzel is a man of genius,' said Grodman, "'and as such comes under the heading of suspicious characters. "'He has written an epic poem and read it to me. "'It is morbid from start to finish. "'There is death in the third line. "'I dare say you know he polished up my book.' "'Grodman's artlessness was perfect. "'No, you surprise me,' Wimp replied. I'm sure he couldn't have done much to it. Look at your letter in the pell-mell. Who wants more polish and refinement than that showed? Oh, I didn't know you did me the honour of reading that. Oh, yes, we both read it, put in Mrs. Wimp. I told Mr. Wimp it was very clever and cogent. After that quotation from the letter to the poor fellow's fiancée, there could be no more doubt that it was murder. Mr. Wimp was convinced by it, too, weren't you, Edward? Edward coughed uneasily. It was a true statement, and therefore an indiscreet. Grodman would plume himself terribly. At this moment Wimp felt that Grodman had been right in remaining a bachelor. Grodman perceived the humour of the situation, and wore a curious sub-mocking smile. "'On the day I was born,' said Wimp's grandmother-in-law, over a hundred years ago there was a babe murdered wimp found himself wishing it had been she he was anxious to get back to cantercot don't let us talk shop on christmas day he said smiling at grodman besides murder isn't a very appropriate subject no it ain't said grodman how did we get on it oh yes denzil cantercock <laughs> That's curious. Oh, yes, Denzel Cantercrot. Ho, 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 that's curious, for since Denzel revised Criminals I Have Caught, his mind's running on nothing but murders. A poet's brain is easily turned. Wimp's eyes glittered with excitement and contempt for Grodman's blindness. In Grodman's eye there danced an amused scorn of Wimp, to the outsider his amusement appeared at the expense of the poet. Having wrought his rival up to the highest pitch, Grodman slyly and suddenly unstrung him. "'How lucky for Denzil!' 
he said, still in the same naive, facetious, Christmassy tone, that he can prove an alibi in this constant affair. "'An alibi?' gasped Wimp. "'Really?' "'Oh, yes. He was with his wife, you know. She's my woman of all work, Jane. She happened to mention his being with her.' Jane had done nothing of the kind. After the colloquy he had overheard, Grodman had set himself to find out the relation between his two employees. By casually referring to Denville as your husband, he so startled the poor woman that she did not attempt to deny the bond. Only once did he use the two words, but he was satisfied. As to the alibi, he had not yet troubled her, but to take its existence for granted would upset and discomfort Wimp. For the moment that was triumph enough for Wimp's guest. "'Pa,' said Wilfred Wimp, "'what's a alibi? A marble?' "'No, my lad,' said Grodman. "'It means being somewhere else when you're supposed to be somewhere.' "'Oh, playing truant,' said Wilfred self-consciously. His schoolmaster had often proved an alibi against him. "'Then Denzer will be hanged.' Was it a prophecy? Wimp accepted it as such, as an oracle from the gods bidding him mistrust Grodman. Out of the mouths of little children issueth wisdom, sometimes even when they are not saying their lessons. "'When I was in my cradle a century ago,' said Wimp's grandmother-in-law, "'men were hanged for stealing horses.' Uh, they silenced her with snapdragon performances. Wimp was busy thinking how to get at Grodman's factotum. Grodman was busy thinking how to get at Wimp's domestic. Neither received any of the usual messages from the Christmas bells. The next day was sloppy and uncertain. A thin rain drizzled languidly. One can stand that sort of thing on a summer bank holiday. One expects it. But to have a bad December bank holiday is too much of a bad thing. Some steps should surely be taken to confuse the weather clerk's chronology. Once let him know that bank holiday is coming, and he writes to the company for more water. Today his stock seemed low, and he was dribbling it out. At times the wintry sun would shine in a feeble, diluted way, and though the holiday-makers would have preferred to take their sunshine neat, they swarmed forth in their myriads whenever there was a ray of hope. But it was only dodging the raindrops. Up went the umbrellas again, and the streets became meadows of ambulating mushrooms. Denzil Cantercott sat in his fur overcoat at the open window, looking at the landscape in watercolours. He smoked an after-dinner cigarette, and spoke of the beautiful. Crowell was with him. They were in the first-floor front, Crowell's bedroom, which, from its view of the Mile End Road, was livelier than the parlour with its outlook on the back yard. Mrs. Crowell was an anti-tobacconist as regards the best bedroom, but Peter did not like to put the poet or his cigarette out. He felt there was something in common between smoke and poetry, over and above their both being fads. Besides, Mrs. Crowell was sulking in the kitchen. She had been arranging for an excursion with Peter and the children to Victoria Park. She had dreamed of the Crystal Palace, 
but Santa Claus had put no gifts in the cobbler's shoes. Now she could not risk spoiling the feather in her bonnet. The nine brats expressed their disappointment by slapping one another on the staircases. Peter felt that Mrs. Crowl connected him in some way with the rainfall, and was unhappy. Was it not enough that he had been deprived of the pleasure of pointing out to a superstitious majority the mutual contradictions of Leviticus and the Song of Solomon? It was not often that Crowl could count on such an audience. "'And you still call nature beautiful?' he said to Denzil, pointing to the ragged sky and the dripping eaves. "'Ugly old scarecrow!' "'Ugly she seems to-day,' admitted Denzil. "'But what is ugliness but a higher form of beauty? "'You have to look deeper into it to see it. "'Such vision is the priceless gift of the few. "'To me this wan desolation of sighing rain is lovely "'as the sea-washed ruins of cities.' "'Ah, but you would like to go out in it,' said Peter Crowell. As he spoke, the drizzle suddenly thickened into a torrent. "'We do not always kiss the woman we love.' "'Speak for yourself, Denzil. I'm only a plain man, and I want to know if nature isn't a fad. Hello! There goes Mortlake. Lord, a minute of this will soak him to the skin.' The labour leader was walking along with bowed head. He did not seem to mind the shower. It was some seconds before he even heard Crowl's invitation to him to take shelter. When he did hear it, he shook his head. "'I know I can't offer you a drawing-room with duchesses stuck about it,' said Peter, vexed. Tom turned the handle of the shop-door and went in. There was nothing in the world which now galled him more than the suspicion that he was stuck up and wished to cut old friends. He picked his way through the nine brats who clung affectionately to his wet knees, dispersing them finally by a jet of coppers to scramble for. Peter met him on the stairs, and shook his hand lovingly and admiringly, and took him into Mrs. Crowell's bedroom. "'Don't mind what I say, Tom. I'm only a plain man, and my tongue will say what comes uppermost. But it ain't from the soul, Tom. It ain't from the soul.' said Peter, punning feebly, and letting a mirthless smile play over his sallow features. "'You know Mr. Cantercot, I suppose, the poet?' "'Oh, yes. How do you do, Tom?' cried the poet. "'Seen the new pork herald lately? Not bad. Those old times, eh?' "'No,' said Tom. "'I wish I was back in em.' "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' said Peter, in much concern. Look at the good you are doing to the working man. Look at how you are sweeping away the fads. Ah, oh, it's a grand thing to be gifted, Tom. The idea of your chucking yourself away on a compositing room. Manual labour is all very well for plain men like me, with no gifts, but just enough brains to see into the reality of things, to understand that we've got no soul and no immortality, and all that and too selfish to look after anybody's comfort but my own and mother's and the kids. But men like you and Cantercot, it ain't right that you should be pegging away at low material things. Not that I think Cantercot's gospel any value to the masses. The beautiful is all very well for folks who's got nothing else to think of. But give me the true. You're the man for my money, Mortlake. 
"'No reference to the funds, Tom, to which I contribute little enough, heaven knows, though how a place can know anything, heaven alone knows. You give us the useful, Tom. That's what the world wants more than the beautiful.' "'Socrates said that the useful is the beautiful,' said Denzel. "'That may be,' said Peter, "'but the beautiful ain't the useful.' "'Nonsense,' said Denzel. "'What about Jessie? I mean, Miss Diamond. There's a combination for you. She always reminds me of Grace Darling. How is she, Tom?' "'She's dead,' snapped Tom. "'What?' Denzel turned as white as a Christmas ghost. "'It was in the papers,' said Tom. "'All about her in the lifeboat.' "'Oh, you mean Grace Darling,' said Denzel, visibly relieved. "'I meant Miss Diamond.' "'You needn't be so interested in her,' said Tom, surlily. "'She don't appreciate it. Ah, the shower is over. I must be going.' "'No, say a little longer, Tom,' pleaded Peter. "'I can see a lot about you in the papers, but little of your dear old fizz now. I can't spare the time to go and hear you, but I really must give myself a treat.' "'When's your next show?' "'Oh, I'm always giving shows,' said Tom, smiling a little. "'But my next big performance is on the 21st of January, when that picture of poor Mr. Constant is to be unveiled at the Bow Breaker Day Club. They have written to Gladstone and other big pots to come down. I do hope the old man accepts. A non-political gathering like this is the only occasion we could both speak at, and I have never been on the same platform with Gladstone.' He forgot his depression and ill-temper in the prospect, and spoke with more animation. "'No, I should hope not, Tom,' said Peter. "'What with his fads about the Bible being a rock and monarchy being the right thing, he's a most dangerous man to lead the radicals. He never lays his axe to the root of anything except oak trees.' "'Mr. Canticott,' it was Mrs. Crowell's voice that broke in upon the tirade, "'there's a gentleman to see you.' The astonishment Mrs. Crowell put into the gentleman was delightful. It was almost as good as a week's rent to her to give vent to her feelings. The controversial couple had moved away from the window when Tom entered, and had not noticed the immediate advent of another visitor, who had spent his time profitably in listening to Mrs. Crowell before asking to see the presumable object of his visit. "'Ask him up if it's a friend of yours, Canticott,' said Peter. It was Wimp. Denzel was rather dubious as to the friendship, but he preferred to take Wimp diluted. "'Mortlake's upstairs,' he said. "'Will you come up and see him?' Wimp had intended a duologue, but he made no objection, so he too stumbled through the nine brats to Mrs. Crowell's bedroom. It was a queer quartet. Wimp had hardly expected to find anybody at the house on Boxing Day, but he did not care to waste a day. Was not Grodman, too, on the track? How lucky it was that Denzel had made the first overtures, so that he could approach him without exciting suspicion. Mortlake scowled when he saw the detective. He objected to the police on principle. But Crowell had no idea who the visitor was, even when told his name. He was rather pleased to meet one of Denzel's high-class friends, and welcomed him warmly. Probably he was some famous editor, which would account for his name stirring vague recollections. He summoned the eldest brat and sent him for beer, 
people would have their fads, and not without trepidation called down to mother for the glasses. Mother observed at night in the same apartment that the beer money might have paid the week's school fees for half the family. "'We were just talking of poor Mr. Constant's portrait, Mr. Wimp,' said the unconscious Crowl. "'They're going to unveil it, Mortlake tells me, on the twenty-first of next month, at the Bow Break-A-Day Club.' "'Oh,' said Wimp, elated at being spared the trouble of manoeuvring the conversation. "'Mysterious affair, that, Mr. Crowl.' "'No, it's the right thing,' said Peter. "'There ought to be some memorial of the man in the district where he worked, and where he died, poor chap.' The cobbler brushed away a tear. "'Yes, it's only right,' echoed Mortlake, a whit eagerly. "'He was a noble fellow, a true philanthropist, the only thoroughly unselfish worker I've ever met.' "'He was that,' said Peter, "'and it's a rare pattern, his unselfishness.' "'Poor fellow, poor fellow! He preached the useful, too. I've never met his like. Ah, wish there was a heaven for him to go to!' He blew his nose violently with a red pocket-handkerchief. "'Well, he's there, if there is,' said Tom. "'I hope he is,' added Wimp fervently. "'But I shouldn't like to go there the way he did.' "'You were the last person to see him, Tom, weren't you?' said Denzil. "'Oh, no,' answered Tom quickly. "'You remember he went out after me, at least. So Mrs. Drabdump said at the inquest.' "'That last conversation he had with you, Tom,' said Denzil, "'he didn't say anything to you that would lead you to suppose, sir?' Uh... "'No, of course not,' interrupted Mortlake impatiently. "'Do you really think he was murdered, Tom?' said Denzil. "'Mr. Wimp's opinion on that point is more valuable than mine.' replied Tom testily. It may have been suicide. Men often get sick of life, especially if they're bored, he added meaningly. Ah, but you were the last person known to be with him, said Denzil. Crowl laughed. Add you there, Tom. But they did not have Tom there much longer, for he departed, looking even worse tempered than when he came. Wimp went soon after, and Crowl and Denzil were left to their interminable argumentation concerning the useful and the beautiful. Wimp went west. He had several strings, or cords, to his bow, and he ultimately found himself at Kensal Green Cemetery. Being there, he went down the avenues of the dead to a grave to note down the exact date of a death. It was a day on which the dead seemed enviable. The dull, sodden sky, the dripping, leafless trees, the wet, spongy soil, the reeking grass—everything combined to make one long to be in a warm, comfortable grave, away from the leaden ennui of life. Suddenly the detective's keen eye sought a sight of a figure that made his harp throb with sudden excitement. It was that of a woman in a grey shawl and a brown bonnet, standing before a railed-in grave. She had no umbrella. The rain plashed mournfully upon her, and left no trace on her soaking garments. Wimp crept up behind her, but she paid no heed to him. Her eyes were lowered to the grave, which seemed to be drawing them towards it by some strange morbid fascination. His eyes followed hers. The simple headstone bore the name Arthur Constant. 
Wimp tapped her suddenly on the shoulder. "'How do you do, Mrs. Drabdump?' Mrs. Drabdump went deadly white. She turned round, staring at Wimp, without any recognition. "'You remember me, surely,' he said. "'I've been down once or twice to your place about that poor gentleman's papers.' His eye indicated the grave. "'Law, I remember you now,' said Mrs. Drabdump. "'Won't you come under my umbrella? You must be drenched to the skin.' "'Oh, it don't matter, sir. I can't take no hurt. I've had the rheumatics this twenty year.' Mrs. Drabdump shrank from accepting Wimp's attentions, not so much perhaps because he was a man as because he was a gentleman. Mrs. Drabdump liked to see the fine folks keep their place and not contaminate their skirts by contact with the lower castes. "'It's set wet. It'll rain right into the new year,' she announced. "'But they say a bad beginning makes a worse ending.' Mrs. Drabdump was one of those persons who give you the idea that they just missed being born barometers. "'But what are you doing in this miserable spot so far from home?' queried the detective. "'It's bank holiday,' Mrs. Drabdump reminded him, in tones of acute surprise. "'I always make a excursion on bank holiday.' End of chapter 7「The Big Bow Mystery » by Israel Zangwill Read by Adrian Pretzelis This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. « The Big Bow Mystery » by Israel Zangwill Chapter 8 The new year drew Mrs. Drabdump a new lodger. He was an old gentleman with a long grey beard. He rented the rooms of the late Mr. Constant, and lived a very retired life. Haunted rooms, or rooms that ought to be haunted if the ghosts of those murdered in them had any self-respect, are supposed to fetch a lower rent in the market. The whole Irish problem might be solved if the spirits of Mr. Balfour's victims would only depreciate the value of a property to a point consistent with the support of an agricultural population. But Mrs. Drabdump's new lodger paid so much for his new rooms that he laid himself open to a suspicion of a special interest in ghosts. Perhaps he was a member of the Psychical Society. The neighbourhood imagined him another mad philanthropist, but as he did not appear to be doing any good to anybody, it relented and conceded his sanity. Mortlake, who occasionally stumbled across him in the passage, did not trouble himself to think about him at all. He was too full of other troubles and cares. Though he worked harder than ever, the spirit appeared to have gone out of him. Sometimes he forgot himself in a fine rapture of eloquence lashing himself up into a divine resentment of injustice, or a passion of sympathy with the sufferings of his brethren. But mostly he plodded on in a dull mechanical fashion. He still made brief provincial tours, starring a day here and a day there, and everywhere his admirers remarked how jaded and overworked he looked. There was talk of starting a subscription to give him a holiday on the continent a luxury obviously unobtainable on the few pounds allowed him per week. 
the new lodger would doubtless have been pleased to subscribe for he seemed quite to like occupying mortlake's chamber the nights he was absent though he was thoughtful enough not to disturb the hard-worked landlady in the adjoining room by unseemly noise wimp was always a quiet man meanwhile the twenty-first of the month approached and the east end was in excitement mr gladstone had consented to be present at the ceremony of unveiling the portrait of arthur constant presented by an unknown donor to the bow breaker day club and it was to be a great function the whole affair was outside the lines of party politics so that even conservatives and socialists consider themselves justified in pestering the committee for tickets to say nothing of ladies as the committee desired to be present themselves nine-tenths of the applications for admission had to be refused as is usual on these occasions the committee agreed among themselves to exclude the fair sex altogether as the only way of disposing of their womankind who were making speeches as long as mr gladstone's each committee man told his sisters female cousins and aunts that the other committee men had insisted on divesting the function of all grace and what could a man do when he was in a minority of one crowl who was not a member of the breaker day club was particularly anxious to hear the great orator whom he despised fortunately mortlake remembered the cobbler's anxiety to hear himself and on the eve of the ceremony sent him a ticket crowl was in the first flush of possession when denzil cantercot returned after a sudden and unannounced absence of three days his clothes were muddy and tattered his cocked hat was deformed his cavalier beard was matted and his eyes were bloodshot the cobbler nearly dropped a ticket at the sight of him hello cantercot he gasped why where have you been away all these days terribly busy here give me a glass of water i'm as dry as the sahara crowl ran inside and got the water trying hard not to inform mrs crowl of their lodger's return mother had expressed herself freely on the subject of the poet during his absence and not in terms which would have commended themselves to the poet's fastidious literary sense indeed she did not hesitate to call him a sponger and a low swindler who had run away to avoid paying the piper her fool of a husband might be quite sure that he would never set eyes on the scoundrel again however mrs crowl was wrong here was denzil back again and yet mr crowl felt no sense of victory he had no desire to crow over his partner and to utter that see didn't i tell you so which is a greater consolation than a religion in most of the misfortunes of life unfortunately to get the water crowl had to go to the kitchen and as he was usually such a temperate man this desire for drink in the middle of the day attracted the attention of the lady in possession crowl had to explain the situation mrs crowl ran into the shop to improve it mr crowl followed in dismay leaving a trail of spilt water in his wake you good-for-nothing disreputable scarecrow where have you oh hush mother let him drink mr cantercot is thirsty does he care if my children are hungry denzil tossed the water greedily down his throat 
almost at a gulp, as if it were brandy. "'Madam,' he said, smacking his lips, "'I do care. I care intensely. Few things in life would grieve me more deeply than to hear a child, a dear little child, the beautiful, in a nutshell, had suffered hunger. You wrong me!' His voice was tremulous with the sense of injury. Tears stood in his eyes. "'Wrong you? I had no wish to wrong you,' said Mrs. Crowl. "'I should like to hang you!' "'Don't talk of such ugly things,' said Denzil, touching his throat nervously. "'Well, what have you been doing all this time?' "'Why, what should I be doing?' "'How should I know what became of you? I thought it was another murder.' "'What?' Denzil's glass smashed the fragments on the floor. "'What do you mean?' But Mrs. Crowl was glaring too viciously at Mr. Crowl to reply. He understood the message as if it were printed. It ran, "'You have broken one of my best glasses. You have annihilated threepence or a week's school fees for half the family.' Peter wished she would turn the lightning upon Denzil, a conductor down whom it would run innocuously. He stooped down and picked up the pieces as carefully as if they were cuttings from the Kohinoor. Thus the lightning passed harmlessly over his head, and flew towards Canticott. "'What do I mean?' Mrs. Crowl echoed, as if there had been no interval. "'I mean that it would be a good thing if you had been murdered.' "'What unbeautiful ideas you have, to be sure!' murmured Denzil. "'Yes, but they'd be useful,' said Mrs. Crowl, who had not lived with Peter all these years for nothing. "'And if you haven't been murdered, what have you been doing?' "'My dear, my dear,' put in Crowl, depreciatingly, looking up from his quadrupedal position like a sad dog, "'you're not Mr. Cantercot's keeper.' "'Oh, ain't I?' flashed his spouse. "'Who else keeps him, I should like to know?' Peter went on picking up the pieces of the Kohinoor. "'I have no secrets from Mrs. Crowl.' Denzil explained courteously. "'I have been working day and night, bringing out a new paper. I haven't had a wink of sleep for three nights.' Peter looked up at his bloodshot eyes with respectful interest. "'The capitalist met me in the street, an old friend of mine. I was overjoyed at the rencontre, and told him the idea I had been brooding over for months, and he promised to stand all the racket.' "'What sort of a paper?' said Peter. "'Can you ask? To what do you think I've been devoting my days and nights but to the cultivation of the beautiful?' "'Is that what the paper will be devoted to?' "'Yes, to the beautiful.' "'I know,' snorted Mrs. Crow, "'with portraits of actresses.' "'Portraits? Oh, no,' said Denzil. "'That would be the true, not the beautiful.' "'And uh, what's the name of the paper?' asked Crowl. "'Oh, that's a secret, Peter. Like Scott, I prefer to remain anonymous.' "'Just like your fads. I'm only a plain man, and I want to know where the fun of anonymity comes in. If I had any gifts, I should like to get the credit. It's a right and a natural feeling to my thinking.' "'Unnatural, Peter. Unnatural.' We're all born anonymous, and I'm for sticking close to nature. Enough for me that I should disseminate the beautiful. 
"'Any letters come during my absence, Mrs. Crowl?' "'No,' she snapped. "'But a gent named Grodman called. "'He said you hadn't been to see him for some time "'and looked annoyed to hear you disappeared. "'How much have you let him in for?' "'The man's in my debt,' said Denzil, annoyed. "'I wrote a book for him, and he's taken all the credit for it, the rogue.' "'My name doesn't appear even in the preface. "'What's that ticket you're looking so lovingly at, Peter?' "'That's for to-night. "'The unveiling of Constance's portrait. "'Gladstone speaks. "'Awful demand for places.' "'Gladstone!' sneered Denzil. "'Who wants to hear Gladstone? "'A man who's devoted his life "'to pulling down the pillars of church and state.' "'A man who's devoted his life to propping up the crumbling fads of religion and monarchy. "'But for all that, the man has his gifts, and I'm burning to hear him.' "'I wouldn't go out of my way an inch to hear him,' said Denzil, and went up to his room, and when Mrs. Crowl sent him up a nice cup of strong tea at tea-time, the brat who bore it found him lying dressed on the bed, snoring unbeautifully. The evening wore on. It was fine, frosty weather. The Whitechapel Road swarmed with noisy life, as though it were a Saturday night. The stars flared in the sky like the lights of celestial costermongers. Everybody was on the alert for the advent of Mr. Gladstone. He must surely come through the road on his journey from the West Bow Wards. But no one saw him or his carriage except for those about the hall. Probably he went by tram most of the way. He would have caught cold in an open carriage, or bobbing his head out of the window of a closed. "'If he had only been a German prince or a cannibal king,' said Crowl bitterly, as he plodded toward the club, "'we should have disguised Mile End in bunting and blue fire. But perhaps it's a compliment. He knows his London, and it's no use trying to hide the facts from him. They must have a queer notion of cities, these monarchs.' They must fancy everybody lives in a flutter of flags, and walks about under triumphant arches, like as if I was to stitch shoes in my Sunday clothes. By a defiance of chronology, Crowl had them on to-day, and they seemed to accentuate the simile. "'And why shouldn't life be fuller of the beautiful?' said Denzil. The poet had brushed the reluctant mud off his garments to the extent he was willing to go, and had washed his face but his eyes were still bloodshot from the cultivation of the beautiful. Denzil was accompanying Crowl to the door of the club, out of good fellowship. Denzil was himself accompanied by Grodman, though less obtrusively. Least obtrusively was he accompanied by his usual Scotland Yard shadows, Wimp's agents. There was a surging, nondescript crowd about the club, so that the police and the doorkeeper and the stewards could with difficulty keep out the tide of the ticketless, though which the current of the privileged had equal difficulty in permeating. The streets all around were thronged with people longing for a glimpse of Gladstone. Mortlake drove up in a hansom, his head a self-conscious pendulum of popularity, swaying and bowing to right and left, and received all the pent-up enthusiasm. "'Well, good-bye, Canticott,' said Crowl. "'No, I'll see you to the door, Peter.' They fought their way shoulder to shoulder. 
Now that Grodman had found Denzel, he was not going to lose him again. He had only found him by accident, for he was himself bound to the unveiling ceremony, to which he had been invited in view of his known devotion to the task of unveiling the mystery. He spoke to one of the policemen about, who said, "'Aye, aye, sir,' and he was prepared to follow Denzel if necessary, and to give up the pleasure of hearing Gladstone for an acuter thrill. The arrest must be delayed no longer. But Denzel seemed as if he were going in on the hills of Crowell. This would suit Grodman better. He could then have the two pleasures. But Denzel was stopped half-way through the door. "'Ticket, sir!' Denzel drew himself up to his full height. "'Press!' he said majestically. All the glories and grandeurs of the fourth estate were concentrated in that haughty monosyllable. Heaven itself is full of journalists who have overawed St. Peter. But the doorkeeper was a veritable dragon. "'What paper, sir?' "'New York Herald,' said Denzel sharply. He did not relish his word being distrusted. "'New York Herald,' said one of the bystanding stewards, scarce catching the words. "'Pass him in!' And in a twinkling of an eye Denzel had eagerly slipped inside. During the brief altercation Wimp had come up. Even he could not make his face quite impassive, and there was a suppressed intensity in the eyes and a quiver about the mouth. He went in on Denzel's heels, blocking up the doorway with Grodman. The two men were so full of their coming coups that they struggled for some seconds, side by side, before they recognized each other. Then they shook hands heartily. "'It was Canticut just went in, wasn't it, Grodman?' said Wimp. "'I didn't notice.' said Grodman, in tones of utter indifference. At bottom Wimp was terribly excited. He felt that his coup was going to be executed under very sensational circumstances. Everything would combine to turn the eyes of the country upon him, nay, of the world, for had not the big bow mystery been discussed in every language under the sun? In these electric times the criminal receives a cosmopolitan reputation. It is a privilege he shares with few other artists. This time Wimp would be one of them, and he felt deservedly so. If the criminal had been cunning to the point of genius in planning the murder, he had been acute to the point of divination in detecting it. Never before had he pieced together so broken a chain. He could not resist the unique opportunity of setting a sensational scheme in a sensational framework. The dramatic instinct was strong in him. He felt like a playwright who has constructed a strong melodramatic plot, and has the Drury Lane stage suddenly offered him to present it on. It would be folly to deny himself the luxury, though the presence of Mr. Gladstone and the nature of the ceremony should perhaps have given him pause. Yet, on the other hand, these were the very factors of the temptation. Wimp went in and took a seat behind Denzel. All the seats were numbered, so that everybody might have the satisfaction of occupying somebody else's. Denzel was in the special reserved places in the front row just behind the central gangway. Crowell was squeezed into a corner behind a pillar near the back of the hall. Grodman had been honoured with a seat on the platform, which was accessible by steps on the right and left, but he kept his eye on Denzel. 
the picture of the poor idealist hung on the wall behind Grodman's head, covered by its curtain of brown holland. There was a subdued buzz of excitement about the hall, which swelled into cheers every now and again, as some gentleman known to fame or bow took his place upon the platform. It was occupied by several local MPs of varying politics, a number of parliamentary satellites of the great man, three or four labour leaders, a peer or two of philanthropic pretensions, a sprinkling of Toynbee and Oxford Hall men, the President and other honorary officials, some of the family and friends of the deceased, together with the inevitable percentage of persons who had no claim to be there save cheek. Gladstone was late. Later than Mortlake, who was cheered to the echo when he arrived, someone starting, for he's a jolly good fellow, as if it were a political meeting. Gladstone came in just in time to acknowledge the compliment. The noise of the song, trolled out from iron lungs, had drowned the huzzas heralding the old man's advent. The convivial chorus went to Mortlake's head, as if champagne had already preceded it. His eyes grew moist and dim. He saw himself swimming to the millennium on waves of enthusiasm. Ah, how his brother toilers should be rewarded in their trust in him! In his usual courtesy and consideration, Mr. Gladstone had refused to perform the actual unveiling of Arthur Constant portrait. That, he said in his postcard, will fall most appropriately to Mr. Mortlake, a gentleman who has, I am given to understand, enjoyed the personal friendship of the late Mr. Constant, and has cooperated with him in various schemes for the organization of skilled and unskilled classes of labor, as well as for the diffusion of better ideals, ideals of self-culture and self-restraint, among the working men of Bow, who have been fortunate, so far as I can perceive, in the possession, if in one case unhappily only temporary possession, of two such men of undoubted ability and honesty to direct their divided counsels to lead them along a road which, though I cannot pledge myself to approve of it in all its turnings and windings, is yet not unfitted to bring them somewhat nearer to goals to which there are few of us, but would extend some measure of hope that the working classes of this great empire may, in due course, yet with no unnecessary delay, be enabled to arrive. Mr. Gladstone's speech was an expansion of his postcard, punctuated by cheers. The only new thing in it was the grateful and touching way in which he revealed what had been a secret up till then, that the portrait had been painted and presented to the Bow Break-A-Day Club by Lucy Brent, who in the fullness of time would have been Arthur Constant's wife. It was a painting for which he had sat to her while alive, and yet she had stifled yet pampered her grief by working harder since his death. The fact added the last touch of pathos to the occasion. Crowl's face was hidden behind his red handkerchief. Even the fire of excitement in Wimp's eye was quenched for a moment by a teardrop as he thought of Mrs. Wimp and Wilfred. As for Grodman, there was almost a lump in his throat. Denzil Cantercot was the only unmoved man in the room. He thought the episode quite too beautiful, and was already weaving it into rhyme. At the conclusion of his speech, Mr. Gladstone called upon Tom Mortlake to unveil the portrait. Tom rose, pale and excited. 
He faltered as he touched the cord. He seemed overcome with emotion. Was it the mention of Lucy Brent that had moved him to his depths? The brown Holland fell away. The dead stood revealed as he had been in life. Every feature painted by the hand of love was instinct with vitality. The fine, earnest face, the sad, kindly eyes, the noble brow seemed still a throb with the thought of humanity. A thrill ran through the room. There was a low, undefinable murmur. Oh, the pathos and the tragedy of it! Every eye was fixed, misty with emotion, upon the dead man in the picture, and the living man, who stood, pale and agitated, and visibly unable to commence his speech at the side of the canvas. Suddenly a hand was laid upon the labour-leader's shoulder, and there rang through the hall, in wimps, clear, decisive tones, the words, "'Tom Mortlake, I arrest you for the murder of Arthur Constant.'" End of chapter 8What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.